Amen. So we're in 1 Corinthians 8, and it's been a, a Q&A of its own, this book. Uh, and then went on from them to other places. And what had happened is, is that there was some problems rose up in the church. Of course, they had visions. They had you know, different groups following different, uh, different elders or different people in the congregation who were influential or who were exciting or who wore the cooler clothes. They were sort of arguing against each other who was the better pastor and leader. Uh, and, and so there was those things that Paul had to fix up and reunite them around the cross of Jesus and make them realize you have nothing in life if you don't have the cross. Of course, the cross is something that, as we saw this through chapter 1 and 2, is a huge offense to the world. Don't expect that when you focus on the cross, you'll get popular. When you orient your life around Jesus crucified, that you're going to somehow rise up in the world's standards of, of fame. That's not going to be the case. However, we are, we are building, this is number uh, chapter 3, we are building not our own empires, but the kingdom of Christ. We are his temple. And therefore, as we seek to serve one another, not ourselves, as we seek to worship and glorify Jesus in his kingdom, not our own empire, when we do that, we will glorify Jesus vertically. God and us are, are put into a, a right relationship. You are only in that. Uh, in a, your, 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 your purpose on earth is being fulfilled in as much as you're serving God, glorifying him. But also, when we're correct with God, we also start, uni- uh, start, uh, uh, we start getting right with our family as well. And, and so unity comes about. The ultimate joy and sacrifice towards one another begins to happen, as it should be in the church. And uh, then we spent way too many weeks, though I, I hope it was helpful, on uh, sex and marriage. And that was uh, uh, some curly questions that the Corinthians had either asked or some people from the church had, had sent complaints to Pastor Paul saying, you don't know what people here are currently doing. Please tell them, keep their clothes on. And so Paul does. And we get tonight to chapter 8 where Paul changes topic. We're no longer talking about marriage and how to live in that way. Well, he's actually going to start asking the question, and it's a pretty short chapter, but we're also going to go and touch on some in chapter 10. He's, the, the, the question that they've been asked is about meat that has been sacrificed to idols, a question you no doubt have had many, many times in your Christian walk. Which meat sold at Woolies are you allowed to eat? Well, this is, this is such a pressing question for the early century church uh, because, and we're going to get into it, but, but they're, they're living in a, in a not yet Christianized society. We are in that sort of in-between stage where there's no way you would look around at our city or our world on a Friday, Saturday night, or, 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 or you know, you, you look at our culture, there's no way you would say, ah, the, the perfection and, and uh, epitome of biblical Christianity and holiness. No, there's, there's, we're in a culture that is very much pagan, very much anti-God and, and whatnot, uh, opposed to the Christian worldview. And yet in another sense, if you have traveled the world at all, you're also going to come back onto the shores of Australia and say, ah, a, a somewhat Christianized society that you do not, as you do in India or some parts of, of, uh, of, the, the, of the Middle East, you're not going to be walking around and seeing idols and temples to all sorts of different gods everywhere. Right? Because we are, in the West, somewhat Christianized, but not very many of us are Christians. So we're sort of in this awkward spot, but the Corinthians were living in a highly pagan, highly anti-Christian, and uh, uh, in a world that 
had not even really experienced Christianity much. They, they didn't even understand what these monotheists were teaching. So we're going to read this and just you can get a, a feel and a taste of how messy the first century was. It reads like this. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding, your, wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. May God bless the reading of this word to us tonight. That is where you say amen. There you go. And also keep a tab over on chapter 10 because we will go there <coughs> a little bit later. Now, of course, the, um, as we said, the first century and Corinth was very different from uh, the, sort of the 21st century Brisbane that you and I live in. Basically, and all this talk about meat offered to idols was a very relevant question for them because it was very hard in their day and age to purchase any meat for cooking if it, uh, th that was not in some way associated with the pagan worship and temples of their day. Here's what you would work. You would uh, take some uh, animal, from some, an animal is just meat that hasn't been killed yet. That's my opinion. So, so there's some animals, uh, a steak still walking around. And, and what they would do is they would take that meat and they would take it to the priest in the temple, the pagan temple, to Aphrodite's or to whatever god that they were worshipping. There was a few stages to it. They would give it over and the priest would kill it. They would usually bleed it out into some kind of cup and they would either do weird rituals with it, marking themselves or drinking the blood or, or crazy pagan things. But what would then happen is the, the uh, uh, vital organs, the heart and the liver and the intestines, they, apparently the best parts, would be given as a sacrifice to that god, burned on some altar, and that makes him happy. And then parts of the meat were then shaved off and given to the priest, sort of as his after uh, uh, temple service meal. And then the rest of it, if the priest didn't need it, could either go back with the guy who brought the meat, or the priest could go and sell in the marketplace. So that attached to all the back of these temples was the grocery aisles in the shops. 
So you can see that as you start going through the groceries and you're going to get your meat, it's, it's very likely you're going to be buying from Aphrodite's butchery or, or from these, these pagan butchers named so after their temple. Meaning the only other, if you want to entirely avoid eating any meat that has been touched or dedicated to or sacrificed for an idol and false god, then you have to be a vegetarian. And we all know that's not a Christian option. Goodness me, you, you, I, I feel for you. If, if you, for some dietary or, or medical reason, have, have that forced upon you, I feel for you. You're in my prayers. But here we are. The, the, they're saying, obviously, this is a question. It's funny to me that that was a legitimate option, and none of them took it. Uh, and, so, and so Paul's saying, uh, and that's sort of the, and we'll get there in verse 13. That's the extent of his extremity of his love. He said, I would even be a vegetarian. I won't say it. I won't. But anyway, we're, we're digressing. You're getting distracted. And, and, and so Paul's writing to them to help them. You have to see what happens here in, in verse 1. Now concerning food offers offered to idols, we know that all of us, you might have in your Bible, that's in quotation marks, all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge, he says, puffs up, but love builds up. He's going to, in a little bit, get into the differentiation between, here's where we'll go tonight, Theological knowledge and edifying love, they are not always the same thing. You ever met a Calvinist online who doesn't go to church? They're not the same thing. Theological knowledge and edifying, edifying, we get that word in, in, as we talk about an edifice, uh, it means to build up. Uh, uh, and edifying, building up love are not the same things. And Paul showed that to us tonight. Now, you might often think uh, how this could be relevant to us at all, meat sacrifice to idols, but I did some digging around in the original Greek, and this word, meat sacrifice to idols, sort of comes into English as a steak that has been cooked to the point of well done or more. If, if you are not cooking your meat at a medium rare, uh, still nice and pink in the middle, this is, this is sin. This is, uh, if you have to get sauce, this is, this is my rule, if you're cooking a steak, and it's, it's overdone, and you need sauce in order to be able to chew through it. You, I mean, in Paul's light, you may as well draw a pentagram on it with sauce. It's, it's, it's the demon's meat now. Jesus' meat is the, is the beautiful steaks cooked, still juicy and soft. You don't need sauce. God gave it sauce. It's called the fat, okay? And it comes already prepackaged. Uh, and, and so that's what I think the original Greek means in our context, although other applications may stretch to things like because, of course, in their day, the, 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 uh, the meat was, uh, and the, the idol worship was also associated with all of their main holidays. So we might think maybe in the West you could stretch out to England and America and go, we've got maybe there's a Thanksgiving, there's a Halloween, there's a Christmas, there's an Easter, there's July 4th or Australia Day and Anzac Day and War Memorial Day. And so by the time you take all the Labor Day holidays, the question becomes, when they go and they kill all this meat and then flood the markets with this idol meat, and often those days would be followed by feasts, you have to start asking, if you're a Christian that is in any way involved in society and not living out in your own commune in the desert, how are we to avoid idol worship? How are we to avoid getting our hands stuck in and dirty with and defiling our souls and our worship and then defiling the church as we come to worship together? How are we to avoid that if everything's devoted to an idol in our world? And so Paul's question still rings true today, of course. We might even ask practical questions like, can I 
visit my, my Buddhist friend's house if all around his house is all these images and idols? Well, that might be an obvious question to some and a difficult one for others. Can I go to a Catholic friend's wedding if it's all going to be, you know, uh, as a part of this Eucharistic and, and Catholic-styled uh, uh, ceremony? That might be a, a tough question for others. Might, might even ask other questions as, as Paul gets into tonight, the conscience. The conscience is God's law written on your heart, or that part of you that God, is God-given, which, which tells you and what you're doing is wrong. And the conscience is not some static thing that never changes. Your, your conscience is strengthened and is built up, or your conscience is weakened. And so you can, if you know a lot of God's word and you understand a Christian worldview, you have a, a robust, strong conscience. However, you can have a strong conscience and a calloused conscience. The other side of this conscience is, regardless of how much you know, if you're the type of person who, whenever your conscience flares up, you start shutting it down and silencing it, and, and, and you, you don't listen to it, that's like, like you not listening to pain receptors on your fingers while you're cooking. You keep on doing that, or maybe you're doing woodwork, and, and the more you do it and you ignore those pain receptors, you'll damage your nerves. You'll kill those nerves, and you'll have calloused fingertips or, or calloused hands so that the next time damage comes, you don't feel it. So it's, a, it's an appropriate thing for Paul to warn them. Do not let your conscience be uh, uncared for. It needs to stay sensitive and tender to what God is saying, and it needs to be well-informed so that you don't make inappropriate legalistic rules. So we might have today questions in the church around things like, can Christians smoke? My answer is no, only good Cubans. Are Christians allowed to drink beer? And the answer is no, not if it's under 4%, that's water. Are we allowed to drink whiskey again? No, it, only if it's single malt. Your body, after all, is a temple. And, and, or, or we might have those questions, or, or let's get a little bit, maybe that would be a bit more sensitive to people and say, well, are Christians allowed to get tattoos? Are Christians allowed to go to like sports on Sundays? Are Christians allowed to um, uh, uh, get piercings? And, and, you know, some of you will go, is that a question? And to others of, us, others of us will say the other direction. Is that even a question? No, they should do none of those things. So we need to recognize, and I think in one way we can, uh, uh, we're, we're somewhat uh, a picture of the Corinthian church in that we have a great spectrum among us. People from cultural backgrounds that are very different. People from religious backgrounds that are very different. People from uh, age groups or demographics or cultures that have been entirely shaped differently. And so we need to be sensitive to one another. This is Paul's main exhortation tonight. It's good, important, and necessary that we establish theological knowledge, but friends, we also have to have edifying love. <coughs> After all, it has been defined even by Paul himself. When he writes in 1 Thessalonians 1, and this is me saying it's appropriate for Christians to ask these questions and to be careful about how we or whether we are doing something that is engaging in idol worship or anything got to do with idols at all. Chapter 10, when we get there in future sermons, is going to deal entirely with idols. But tonight it's sufficient to say that, that Paul, in talking to the Thessalonians, he, remi he reminds them of their repentance, their conversion. And he defines it as how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 
So, so that's an important, important thing. We have been those turned from idols to Jesus Christ. It's an important question to ask. But I want to ask you, as we sort of enter into this discussion tonight, ask yourself, what things do you see other Christians doing that tempts you, that you think is sin, and you see other Christians doing it, and they're fine with doing it, but you're convinced that's a sin? Maybe it's because they're from a completely different church background. Maybe it's they're, they're new. Whatever it is, you see Christians doing that, and it always te- it, it, you know you think it's a sin. And not only that, but you're tempted to join in it with them, though you know it's a sin. Right? You're not perfect. You know that's wrong, but you still desire that. And so that just annoys you all the more, that they're doing what you can't do, what you think they shouldn't do, and they're ruining your conscience. Well, it's that sort of thing that Paul is addressing tonight. And I ask you to think of that as opposed to, right, I could have said, what's something you see other Christians doing that you know isn't a sin, but it's just darn dumb, and they shouldn't do it, and you can't point to a verse, and you don't have a good biblical reason, but it's silly, it's bad, and it's, it's just, look, it's naughty. It'd get you a black star on the Sunday school chart. That's what it'd do. If, if you think of that, that's not what Paul's talking about tonight. He's, he's really not even going to address things that you have no uh, uh, temptation towards. He's talking things that you believe are sin, that others might believe are sin, and that cause temptation in the hearts of others. So let's, <clears throat> let's see here in verse 4 and 6. And we, we're going to just really quickly cover verses 4 through to 6. So, uh, good foundational theological knowledge that all Christians need and that I hope we all have. Paul says this, Therefore, as to the eating of foods offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. Again, he's quoting them, right? He's quoting what they've already said in their letter to him. That, yeah, I know this. I agree. We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are so-called gods in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. Here's what's going on. Paul's saying, well, let me ask you the question. If somebody comes up to you and goes, okay, you're a Christian, tell me, uh, does Thor exist? I'm going to give the answer in case there's anyone who would yell it out wrong. The answer is no. That is a false God. He's not up there. Asgard is not floating up there anywhere. And yet, on another side, we want to say, and yet it's not as if Thor was entirely a a metaphysical, or add in the name of any other pagan religion you want, it's not as if he was entirely a metaphysical imagination of people so long ago. Paul's saying that in the idol, maybe there's a statue. Maybe you've been to India or Myanmar on on some of our mission trips in the past, and, and you've been there and you see people lying down and bowing down and giving food and giving money that needs to go to their starving kids to this little statue on on stilts. And here they are, they're sacrificing, and one Christian idea is, what a waste, that thing doesn't exist. It has no existence. Idols don't exist. It's a carving. The same way you make a little toy for your kid, or as Isaiah mockingly points out, as you make firewood, you chop some wood, you burn it, and then you make a god with the other bit, what are you thinking? So of course we want to say, idols don't exist. And yet, Paul says in verse 5, Yet there are things or beings called little g gods or little l lords. Or if you turn with me to chapter 10, verse 20, we'll use the word demons. Chapter 10, let's go in verse 19. 
as he's telling them, don't go and worship idols in these temples. He says, so what am I implying by all this? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that pagans sacrifice when, sorry, that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So maybe that would be the answer to the, to the political correct people who say, you can't say that other gods don't exist. Your answer should be, okay, they do exist. They're called demons. They, and I hope that offends you less, maybe. Uh, they, and of course, we know this, that behind all of the other pagan religions, we even see in the Old Testament that they are so inextricably, inex, oh, that was a bad word to try and use while I'm tired, joined to nations even. So, so, that, so that, yes, there was Baal, and he's a demon and being worshipped, but that he's empowering certain armies and forces, and, and we see this. And let's not get too, uh, you know, propped up by being this side of the Enlightenment and say there's no metaphysical world out there, there's no spiritual side of things, it's all just science, and then people had weird dreams. Friends, demons are, as Paul will say later, ministers of the devil who transform themselves or appear as angels of light. Did Joseph Smith, who started the Mormon uh, church, did he truly have a vision? Yes. Was he truly teleported somewhere and saw magnificent heavenly scenes? Yes. And it was a demon showing him that. So we need to realize this reality. There is no reality behind idols. There is no actual sovereignty they have. There is no actual power that they have that is in and of themselves. They did not create the world. Those mythologies are rubbish. And yet, idol worship is not irrelevant. It is participating and bowing down to supremely powerful beings called demons. So Paul says, of course, there are many so-called gods in heaven uh, and on earth. He says, however, verse 6, this is what is the underlying foundation for all confidence in the rest of the discussion. For us, in other words, for those in the know, for those who have passed, not from plurality of, of postmodernism of many gods to, well, I choose Jesus, but I know there's other valid options. He says the reality is that they're demons. Other people see them as gods, but for us, we see according to truth. We see according to how things really are because God opened our eyes and we looked at that in chapter 2. What we see here <coughs> is that he says, For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Friends, this is foundational. There is only one God and he exists eternally and equally in three distinct persons. One being called God. His name is Yahweh. Three persons existing eternally in that God, the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. This is what we call the historic doctrine of the Trinity. We need to learn it, be able to defend it, and stand firm on it. All other gods were created, if, if we're talking about demons, they were created by God as angels who with Satan fell in a great rebellion against God and his purpose of the Christ. So that demons were created by God as angels and are now fallen. 
So all those other gods owe their existence to the one true God. We don't need to worry here about a divine chess match going on or, or a cosmic battle of an arm wrestle that we don't know who's going to win. All other gods are created beings, confused and evil, and our God is the one true living God who alone is from eternity and will exist into eternity as judge and savior of all people. Amen. This is part of the the, uh, the confession of the Israelites. Hear, O Israel, know that the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Paul sort of mutates that statement and says, the Lord our God is one, the Father, and Jesus Christ, one God, one Lord. And so that is foundational to everything else. Now the question comes, is that theological knowledge, if I tell you that and then send you out as maybe missionaries to idolatrous places or, or back into the first century, is that knowledge enough? Well, sure. You can eat anything. You can go anywhere. It doesn't matter that you're in some little gold uh, uh, building that's called Aphrodite's or they're going to worship someone else. You know it literally has no power over you. Do what you want. Eat what you want. And yet, does, does that really translate to, um, to, to fluent and unified living between other people and Christians? The answer, of course, is no. So you have that theological knowledge. But look back at verse 2. In fact, the last half of verse 1, he says, this knowledge, if that's all you have, if it's just knowledge, it puffs up. Makes you feel good that you know that. It inflates your mind as someone who knows but it stops you. It, it barricades you against building other people up because you don't have love. Love builds up. Verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. It is ultimately not about what you know. It is ultimately about who you are known by, which is God. It is ultimately about who you are known by, who is God. However, <clears throat> if you think, and he sort of says this in verse, verse 2 and 3 there, you think you've got knowledge, well, the first sign that you do not know much is that you think you know everything. We all know that. And then the first sign that you really do know a lot is that you're aware of how very little you know. Well, once you start learning about God and about his, his purposes in the Word, you realize that you know very little. And you, it will take you, if God gives it to you, eternity to understand it all. Well, anyone who claims that they know everything and they know, don't need to add love to this is, in fact, tearing down the body of Christ. And so look down now to what it means to have edifying love in verse, uh, verse 7. <clears throat> he says now <clears throat> that those theological foundations are not enough, that knowledge itself is not enough, as long as you're involved with other people who are on, who are also on the spectrum of sanctification, still walking forwards in their growth. He's going to show us, really, that shame on those, and we're going to see it here, shame on those who, who like to flex our knowledge or, or flex how much we know and how little we care about, other, about our conscience because we've just got it figured out. Shame on us if we do that without considering the lesser brother the weaker brother, who needs more rules around his conscience because it's, it's very unlearned, who, who was only recently saved, so, so remembers like last week when he would bow down to those idols. 
Maybe it was last week that I was in a very anti-Christian club that would, and we would do each other's tattoos and to him to, to think of tattoo and, and Christian is just against itself or, or to the guy who had an addiction or, or was in a, an ungodly society of drug addicts and dealers and whatnot. And so to, to, to even smoke anything at all, to pick that up would, would be a, a, a strenuous exercise in fighting temptation for this Christian. Shame on us if we want to flex our own freedoms without thinking of them. We, in that moment, while we try and show how mature we are, we show how immature we truly are when we do not consider the lesser brother. Look in verse 7. He says, However, despite that theological knowledge, not all possess this knowledge. He's not talking about non-Christians. Talking about Christians, I think what his point is here is that there's knowledge and maybe they confess the same things. Maybe they just amend that in the sermon. They say, yes, amen, there's only one God. But that knowledge has not yet drifted down to their heart, shaping their conscience so that they can confidently walk past an idolatrous temple and scoff at that so-called being behind that petty little temple. They're not there yet. And so Paul says, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols. Maybe you were one of the the priests in that temple. Maybe you were one of the the, the prostitutes who serviced people in that temple. Maybe you were one of the people taking the meat out to the back and you saw how pagan and dark it was. We've got people among us tonight even who who in former religions or, or, or twisted versions of Christianity have experiences of the spiritual kind that would keep the usual person awake at night if it wasn't for the confidence you have in Jesus. Well, these people, the rest of verse 7, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. We're going to see that the ultimate issue is not what is true. I'm not a postmodern. I'm not saying there's truth, then there's our feelings, and that's what matters. But what Paul is saying is, it's not what is true that alone guides our actions, but also how actions are perceived. So that you can sit at a table and just eat a fine sirloin steak cooked to medium rare, and it's fine. It's just delicious. And the guy next to you is engaging in a plate of demonic worship. And it was served down by the same waitress. It was cooked in the same kitchen. And what's the difference? You know you're not doing anything to do with the demon. And to him, he is. The second that that plate came down to him, he knew if I eat this, I'm sacrificing to that God. If I take this into myself, I'm some other views that they had, I'm taking demonic power into myself. And here's their conscience fighting. And if they do that, same act as you, but to them, it's sin. So Paul is not just worried about what is true, but also how it is perceived. He says in verse 8, food will not commend us to God. If all of this ends up meaning you can't get that tattoo, you can't smoke the cigar, you, you can't engage in alcohol, you, you can't eat that meat because it's sacrificed to demons, if that's all it does, none of those things were going to get you closer to God. You knew that, right? You're not actually missing out on spiritual maturity. It's only your own pleasure. We know as Christians we willingly sacrifice our own pleasure for the good of others. So we'll go on, verse 8. We are not... Better off if we, uh, sorry, we are not worse off if we do not eat, and we're not better off if we do. Verse 9, but take care 
that this right of yours, you have a right to live according to your conscience. Paul's saying that it's true, but your freedom is limited by love. Your Christian liberty, while it may leave you technically able to do anything and everything in this world that is not in itself sin according to your conscience and the word, yet that liberty is limited by love towards those most close to you. It is limited by love. You say, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? So by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I want to point something out here. Paul's, and this is echoing what we said before, Paul's main point is not hurting other Christians' feelings. In the Christian life, you will hurt other Christians' feelings, not so much because you're doing something sinful, but because of their own sin of making up or inheriting false unbiblical traditional laws or rules, and they see you and they don't like what you're doing. They don't like that you listen to music with drums in it. Don't you know that drums were invented by Satan? One of you knows that. Or, or you're on this side and you say, no, no, makeup was given to the world by demons. And if women wear makeup, they, you know, they, well, they, they stop looking like demons. But, they, but, you know, it's all very wrong if they do that, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, you're caught and, and Christians have false rules. Now, here's the point. Paul is saying, I'll, I'll, I'll point out what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, be careful how many people are annoyed at you or, or, have, or, or are, um, are, are, they're offended by your actions. Not the point tonight. Now, you have freedom to serve them in those ways if you want to, but the point tonight is actually things that other people believe are sin and attempted to commit. I want to point this out in verse 7 through 13. In 7, he's not just talking about the fact that they don't like what you're doing. We have to bear with each other in that. But that they're actually being tempted to fall into it. So verse 7, it says that they eat food really offered to idols, and therefore they are defiled. So they're actually engaging in the act. Verse 9, take cause that this right of yours does not become a stumbling block. So it's not simply that they're wondering about it. They're actually falling into a defiled state because of you. Verse 10, if anyone sees you in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat the foods offered to idols? This is all about tempting others to actually engage in the sin. Or we see in verse uh, 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience, you sin against Christ. Verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble. If tattoos... Tempt my friend who is against tattoos by conscience to get a tattoo. I, I won't. Right? If, if drinking alcohol tempts maybe a formerly addicted or abusive or, or formerly or, or somebody who is by conscience against alcohol, if, if they are against it, but they're fine for you to partake, it's all good, they don't mind, then you're free. 
But if by doing so you tempt them to the edge of what they believe is sin, that itself is sin. That means that, like we said before, we, it, if we are those who have extra rules that, that we have and, and we've inherited them from our own, uh, and we find that they keep on getting uh, insulted and offended while we start dealing with new converts or with people from different backgrounds, what you need to do is take those rules that you've received, inherited from maybe traditional family, and take it to the Word of God and see whether this is a legitimate thing that you need to hold as something that may actually keep unity and, and uh, fluency between the family of God. That may be something you need to sacrifice and put to the side. <coughs> but it does mean that if your action causes another brother to sin, then you can no longer claim that it's not between you and the Lord. This is, this is the mindset. We go, no, me and God are fine with this. My action is no sin. I can eat in the idol's uh, uh, courtyard. I can eat the meat that's coming pre-packaged with Aphrodite stamped on it. I don't mind where the meat's been. It's okay for me. Me and the Lord are fine. His sin between him and the Lord is simply between him and the Lord. Paul says that is not true. If your actions cause a brother to stumble who Jesus died for, who Jesus shed his blood for, Jesus has a problem with you and I. Jesus says it just became personal. Though you're doing nothing sinful in the act, you're knowingly tempting a brother. Can you turn with me to Matthew chapter 18? Jesus takes this, the tempting and the leading, maybe it's incidental, you don't want others to sin, you just don't care if they do. Jesus takes that Extremely seriously. <laughs> Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 6 and 7, whoever causes one of these little ones, he's talking about Christians who have come into the kingdom by becoming like a child, simply believing what their father says. Whoever causes another Christian who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck, and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Tie a massive rock around your own throat, jump out at 14,000 feet over the Marianas Trench, and sink. Prefer that than leading a brother into sin. Jesus said, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. Of course, pause there. Of course Jesus knows. Temptation's going to come. You're in a world still influenced by Satan. You're in a world still influenced by sinners and pagans and demons and whatever else. Of course temptations will come. But woe to the one by whom that temptation comes, he says the, in the remainder of that verse. Woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Of course your brothers and sisters will be affected and tempted towards sin all the time. And shame on us. In fact, in Jesus' words, woe upon us. Tragedy will come upon us from God if we take lightly that it would be from us. We need to have not just strong, robust, five-pointed, confessionally founded, reformed theology. We also need others-focused, sacrificial love that looks like Jesus towards one another. 
Without that, the church becomes lots of individuals with lots of rights and preferences and no one seeing the love of Christ put on display. Turn with me to chapter 10 as we finish a little bit here as Paul talks about some practical applications. In chapter 10, he deals with idolatry and not bowing down or going and partaking in idolatrous acts. But then in chapter uh, verse 23, he starts applying it back to the foods. He says, all things are lawful. Well, that's the guy who's saying, technically, it's not a demon. It's fine. Okay. Technically, okay. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things edify, build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the marketplace without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If an unbeliever invites you to his house for dinner and you are deposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. In other words, Paul is saying that as long as, in his example, meat is taken out of the the realm of idolatrous behavior, it's okay for a Christian to partake. So no, it's not okay to just jump on down to the Buddhist temple because they do great luncheons and they do a a solid potluck and so we're going to go and join. No, we, we don't do that because that's still in the realm of idolatry. Everyone will perceive that one way, including the Buddhists, as some kind of affirmation or joining. Flee from that. And yet... Corinthian world, if that meat finds its way to the marketplace, don't go sniffing around asking where this one came from and and whether the farmer who raised it raised it on on demon grass or godly grass and was he praying over the cow or was he a Buddhist or the Buddhist would never farm a cow for meat. That's that's an error on my part. But, you know, whatever else. Uh, so, So you don't need to worry about that, Paul's saying. If it's outside of the realm of idolatry, we're free to eat and partake because those demons do not have real sovereignty reaching into your life. However, verse 28, if you invited along to your non-Christian house who cooks a mean steak, if you invited along one of your Christian friends, in verse 28, if someone says to you, this, non, this, little, this Christian friend of yours, this meat was, sacri- was offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I I don't mean your conscience, but his. Dang, he brought it up. Why do you have to go and ask? I don't care that it's meat sacrificed to idols. You went and asked. Now we can't eat it. And Paul's saying, make that sacrifice. Because you you sacrifice for your brother seeking not your own good, but theirs. And and maybe that applies to, to where you eat. Which bar you go to, where, where you go for a party or what you drink and what you put on your skin and, and what things you indulge in or watch or go and listen to, whatever it is. We all have a huge spectrum of consciences. We need to be considering each other so as to not lead each other into sin. Paul then says, though, verse 29, I do not, uh, uh, I do not, uh, sorry, verse um, halfway through 29, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? This is what he's saying. If it's a sin for you, but you're not tempted, don't add laws onto other Christians. This is all about not tempting each other. So don't, your conscience doesn't control me. I do what I want in my private time. 
Your conscience doesn't control me. You don't get to make rules on other Christians. However, in love, those more mature, those freed up with theological knowledge, we will serve the others, serve one another and each other. Paul says this overarching statement, if I partake with thankfulness, or thanksgiving is the other way that could be rendered, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Go back to chapter 8. So Paul, you know, the, the logic goes, well, this food was consecrated to an idol that belongs to that demon. All right, let's just put the, the straight aces out on the table here. The Christian draw card, before I eat anything, I say, thank you, Jesus, for this food, amen. Which means it, whatever, how deep it was devoted to Satan, it just became Jesus when I said thank you for it. I can eat anything. It doesn't matter what I put through my mouth. I'm thanking Jesus for it. I'm reconsecrating it. So that solves everything, technically. And yet, we make all of these individual sacrifices if our brother's conscience needs to. Let's land here on Jesus as our great example and encouragement here. <clears throat> though demons do not truly exist, uh, sorry, though idols do not truly exist, demons do. We should avoid all that that is generally considered idolatrous so that we do not wound other people's consciences. We don't need to worry that some accidental act or meal has influenced us and you still got some trace elements of demon in your kitchen. No. Dedication through thanksgiving overrules demonic consecration. All comes from Jesus. Everything is from him. And as we read back in verse, uh, verse 6, he is the one who created everything through whom it all exists, including us, and through whom we find purpose. It says, for whom we exist is to God. Can I just, while Paul is making this point of liberty and rights and knowledge, you could pick one guy who probably had rights that superseded anybody else's, rights that included not being treated like scum of the earth, not getting crucified on a cross by little midget beings compared to him that he made, that he's currently holding in existence, that being pinned to a cross made of wood from a tree he created and currently holds in existence. If, if anybody wants to talk about what they deserve to indulge in, I think it's Jesus. He who had rights above everything and everybody else, and yet no one has gone lower in service to what is called his brothers and sisters than Jesus Christ. When you and I are in this kingdom, we have as our head, as our example, as our leader and our teacher, Jesus Christ, who bled and, and by his blood purchased the people sitting next to you. If, if that king can lay down that much for them, surely, surely we can go without some pieces of meat on that day or this day of the year. Surely we can go without this music, that clothing, that dress, this style, that food, that smoke, whatever it is for my, my brother. One more worthy, infinitely more worthy than me has laid his life down for him. There is no limit of what I can do for him. That, in Jesus Christ, we see the perfect example of edifying love. And friends, that's not just as an example to others. That's as a redemption for you. The reason you can come and love well despite your past, the reason you can come into the kingdom of God, though you have rightly been under the sway and temptation of the satanic, demonic, sinful realm all your life, 
reason your sins are forgiven and you are accepted before the Lord is because Jesus died, not just as, as an example, but as a purchasing act to bring your soul to his Father. He lived the perfect life that we could never live, but were required to, to meet God's standards. He died the death that we should have died because we never met his standards. And in his resurrection, he triumphed over grave and sin and Satan to show that anybody, anybody who believes in that, his life, death, and resurrection as Lord of the world, anyone who believes in that can in a moment be saved, forgiven, and transformed into a child of his, somebody in his family, in his kingdom, to sit at a table with himself. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I implore you, believe. Simply believe. Don't trust on the strength of your believing, the strength of your faith, and how devoted you are. Just devote yourself to believing in Jesus. Trust in him. Spurgeon used to say, don't even have faith in your faith. Don't trust in your trust. Don't look at your looking. It doesn't matter how nice your eyes are. Just look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Salvation is there and there alone. Let's bow our heads and pray to the one true living God. Jesus, you have lived for us. You gave yourself for us and redeemed us from our sins by your blood. You are now reigning king who is higher than all on a throne, higher than any other, with a name higher than any other name because you went so low, Lord Jesus, because you served so much, because you gave up and sacrificed such a great amount. The Father has honored you and made you worthy as name above all names. I pray that Christians in the room today and in the week to come, we would live like that is true. My Lord reigns. He deserves my whole life. I can pour out my love to others as he did for me. Lord, I pray that those who do not believe in you, who have not truly been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, who have not truly been justified in your sight, would you tonight give them faith to believe that they can be cleansed from a guilty conscience, welcomed into your family, made holy and righteous and forgiven. And it's in his glorious name, Jesus, that we pray. And everybody said... Amen.